Bibles, Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, when as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privately. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and took unto him his wife, and knew her not till she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. I began reading in the 18th verse and didn't read through the genealogy with which this book begins, but this genealogy is of great significance to who Jesus is. In fact, this whole chapter tells us so much about who Jesus is. I'm not going to delve in depth in the genealogy uh, today, this morning, but I will reference some things from it. But if you're interested in it, uh, I think it's uh, one of the most exciting portions of Scripture uh, is that genealogy. And I'll say a little bit about why, but if you're interested, I preached on it last week so you can find the sermon on Sermon Audio. But uh, why would I say that it's such an interesting passage of Scripture? Genealogies are often uh, difficult, and uh, there are many genealogies throughout the Old Testament. Um, and uh, they're always of significance to us, but they can be difficult. They have many foreign-sounding names. We sometimes struggle to know what's the importance of learning about generation after generation after generation. Uh, one preacher I listened to described the gospel accounts as, as like, uh, if there was a modern-day equivalent, it would be like an extended news bulletin. Because they are announcing news that is of great importance, and they're announcing it to people eager and ready to hear that which is told. And we read them now, often hopefully uh, out loud, but that is often how you would have heard the news. It would have been uh, announced aloud for people to hear. So I want you for a moment to put yourself in the shoes of a, a Jew living 2,000 years ago in the time that this announcement came and think about what would have been the context and the expectation and the situation that you were in when you first heard this news. First of all, we could go way back and we think that uh, 1,500 years approximately before this time, God had called a man named Abraham out of all the nations of the world, and he made promises to him and promised that through him, all the families of the earth would be blessed. 
And that promise had been waiting for its fulfillment all throughout these generations. About a thousand years before this time, God had raised up a king and united the nation of Israel under him, and that was King David, and he had promised to David that he would raise up a son of David, and he would give him the kingdom forever, and he would reign upon the throne, leading the kingdom of the people. About 500 years before this, God had uh, revealed to the prophet Daniel that 483 years in that period of time, after 483 years from the time that the temple was rebuilt, that in that period of time, God would raise up the Messiah, the anointed one, that would be the deliverer of the people. And so when you come to this time and you see the ministry of John the Baptist later come on the scene and the ministry of Jesus, you can sense among the people this great expectation of what God was going to do in this time period, within their lifetimes, in their generation. A genealogy was given for a person of great significance. A genealogy was telling where this person came from. And... And so imagine yourself in that situation. Imagine being a Jew living at that time. And now here comes uh, this announcement. After almost four or five hundred years, there had been no scripture given during that time period. And now suddenly here's this announcement and it begins with a genealogy. It begins with the same kind of language that was used to, to describe the genealogy that came after Adam way back in Genesis chapter 5. And it begins, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And now just uh, imagine the expectation about this person that is being revealed to you. This person that is being declared to you. After generation after generation after hundreds of years. Now you're being told about a man named Jesus. Who is called the Christ. That is the anointed or the Messiah. And you're being told where he came from. You're being told his genealogy. And that's what this goes on to do. Of course, Abraham and David are called out at the beginning, and this genealogy begins from from Abraham, and it goes down through David, and it goes down through the kings of Israel, and then from the time they went into captivity, it goes and gives the descendants, uh, the ancestors of Joseph, who is described in verse 16 as the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus who is called Christ. And then in this chapter, we have, through these things, revealed to us many important things about who Jesus is. And that's what I'd like to focus on this morning. What do we learn about Jesus, even just from this one concise chapter that we're looking at this morning? What do we learn about Jesus? Well, first of all, We learn that Jesus is the promised descendant, sometimes called the seed, the promised descendant of Abraham 
through whom all the families of the earth would be blessed. It helps us to understand the importance of what, of, of what Jesus does and who he is by understanding the causes and influences of evil in this world. One of the, one of the events that's described in the book of Genesis that describes the corruption of humanity and the evil upon the earth and, and helps to dis- describe and explain how things are the way they are today is the story of the Tower of Babel, which was soon before Abraham's time. And it was in this time that it says all the people were of one language and they were of one lip. They, were, they, they said the same things. They believed the same things. And they were united together and they wanted to build a tower that would reach up to heaven. And they wanted to make a name for themselves. And so in those brief statements, we are given a characterization of the kingdom of Babylon at that time and what it was trying to do. And that was to make a name for themselves. This, this uh, is a way of showing their rebellion against God, how they wanted to be the center of humanity, the center of civilization. They didn't want to be scattered across the face of the earth. They didn't want to fill the earth and subdue it. They wanted to make a a tower that reached up to heaven and make a name for themselves, and God would not allow that to happen. God confused the languages of the people, and he scattered them throughout the face of the earth. And when God scattered them throughout the face of the earth, God created what in the Bible is referred to as the nations. It's the families of the earth. Uh, Not so much a modern nation state as we think about it, but the various families of people that were divided particularly by their languages throughout all the earth. And that's where we get the nations or sometimes translated as the heathen or the Gentiles. And they were in this way, um, in, in a very real sense, they were separated from God. And they were in a state of darkness among the nations of the world. But God's plan and purpose had not failed. But in fact, God chose out a man from these nations that worshipped idols, that worshipped false gods. He chose and he called Abraham. And he says, go into a land that I will give you. And I will make of you a great nation. And in you, he says, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And we see from God's calling of Abraham that God's calling of Abraham was to bless Abraham and to make Abraham great, to make his name great, to make his people great, and to, and to pour out his blessings upon them, but also that through Abraham's descendants, or uh, we might say more particularly Abraham's descendant in particular, God was going to bless all the families of the earth. In due time, that that which was uh, broken would be put back together, would be united back together through the descendant of Abraham. And so as this begins here and it describes this Jesus as the son of Abraham is signaling to the reader, to the hearer of these things, that the one we're talking about is the one in whom these promises and the plan of God to bless all the nations of the earth is going to be fulfilled at last. We learn that about Jesus just in those few words. We learn also that Jesus is from the line of kings. 
David and, and the um, genealogy of David is also at the center of this list. David was the, the great king of Israel. He was the king from the tribe of Judah. After God uh, removed Saul from being king, Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin, he raised up David and he, and he promised to David that he would build a house for David. Interesting, uh, there's an interesting exchange where David gets in his heart that he's going to build a house for the Lord. He wants to build the temple. Up until that point, God had been worshipped in the tabernacle, a moving tent. And, and David looks at himself and he's dwelling in a palace and he says, I live in a house of cedars and God dwells in a tent. I want to build a house for the Lord. And he uh, tells the prophet, Nathan, that he's going to do this. And God appears to Nathan and he says, you go and you tell David that he's not going to build me a house. I am going to build his house. And he promises David that he's going to raise up a son to sit upon his throne and he's going to reign forever over the kingdom and so we we see that here jesus is called the son of david and be by being called the son of david we are being let in on the fact that jesus is the one that fulfills god's promises for the kingdom now uh, the kingdom had been in a state of a kind of captivity and exile for about 500 years. Now they had first gone uh, completely into captivity. They'd been kicked out of their land. They were captives in Babylon. And then after about 70 years, God came and he restored some of them back into the land. And they were able to rebuild the temple. And they were able to live back in the promised land. But even in that state, they were subject to the authority and the dominion of the emperor, empires of this world. The Persian Empire and the Greek Empire and now the Roman Empire at, at the time this is written. So they never really had the kingdom restored to them and they were awaiting the one in whom the kingdom of God would be restored. And so we see that Jesus is the son of David. But not only David, but as it goes on to give the genealogy here, it describes how he's the son of David. And, and uh, David's son was Solomon and Reboam and Abiah and Asa. And it goes on to list the kings of Israel. So what to us is a bunch of perhaps difficult names to pronounce that have been uh, translated from Hebrew into Greek and now into English. And we're reading them and they're difficult for us. Think about the significance when you have the king and his son, the king and a king and a king and a king. What we're told is that this Jesus, this man, he's from the line of kings. He is the son of David and he is the promised king. And when God told David that I will build a house, uh, I will build up your house and your son, he says, uh, back in uh, 2 Samuel, he says, he, that is David's son, he shall build a house for my name. Solomon foreshadowed this. Solomon was the, the son of David. Um, his direct son. And Solomon built the temple, the glorious temple. But the one who truly builds the house of God, the one who said that I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The one who truly builds a house for the name of God is the son of David, that is Jesus. We learn 
another thing from this, we learn that he is the Messiah. Messiah or uh, Christ. Christ means the anointed one. And, and when someone was anointed, they were anointed uh, by, by smearing or pouring oil. And it signified God's choice of them. That they were chosen by God for an appointed calling and mission. And they were empowered by God to fulfill that. So when Saul was first chosen to be the king of Israel, he is anointed with oil. He's anointed by the prophet Samuel. And he's anointed through that by God who chose him and set him up to be king of Israel. And it's of great significance because even after Saul, uh, if you remember, Saul, the first king of Israel, Saul disobeyed God. He rebelled against God's commandment. He rejected God. And not only that, but as he began to see God's blessing and favor upon David. He became envious of him and fearful of him. And he not only was disobedient, Saul was not only disobedient to God, but he tried without, without cause to destroy David, to, to, to kill him or have him killed and to wipe him out. And he pursued him to the ends of the earth. And David was was put in a situation twice actually where David was right there with an opportunity to kill Saul after Saul had tried over time and time and time again to have David killed and David's given the opportunity to kill Saul and he will not do it and when he gives his reason he says I will not lift up my hand against the Lord's anointed now, David was a mighty warrior. David, was, David had killed many enemies of the people in battle. David was not afraid to fight. He was not afraid to kill an enemy when it was necessary and when he needed to. But he would not kill Saul, even though Saul was trying again and again to kill David. And the reason he gives is that I will not lift up my hand against the Lord's anointed. Saul was chosen by God. And David had respect to that. And he, uh, he would wait upon God to remove Saul from that. Well, so, well, God also anointed David, and he chose him, and he set him up. The priests were, often a, the priests were anointed for their ministry. And so uh, when we're told about the anointed one, the Christ, the Messiah, it's not an entirely new concept. In fact, there were many anointed ones. There were many that were anointed. Even uh, Cyrus, the Persian emperor, is referred to as God's anointed, God's Messiah in the Old Testament. Because God had appointed him to a particular calling, that is, to uh, tell Israel to go and rebuild the temple. But when we come to Jesus, we're not just told about an anointed one, but we're told about the anointed one. The one that would fulfill all that those others point to that would be the ultimate deliverer and chosen one for God and his people. And of course that brings us too to how he is described here. Central to who he is, he is called the Savior. He is called the Savior. One of the most important, one of the central, one of the most remembered, most known verses in here is... In verse 21, when God is announcing to Joseph about this child, he says, And she shall bring forth a son, 
And thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And that, that's a powerful verse. And we, uh, many of us probably have that memorized. We can cite it from memory. We've heard it said again and again. And we're used to thinking Jesus as our Savior from our sins. But I think this verse is also quite striking in its context. In that the Savior, the Anointed One, the King, the Son of Abraham, the, one, the Promised One who would be the Deliverer of God's people... Central to his identity and his purpose is to be a savior, not just from external enemies, but to save the people themselves from our own sin. That is central to who he is. He's the savior of the people from their sins. Jesus, his name means Savior. It means Yahweh saves. It means Savior. That is uh, the essence of what his name means. In Hebrew, it was the same or very similar to the name uh, Joshua, in fact. And that's what it meant, that he was the Savior, that he was the Deliverer. But in particular, the Lord calls out to Joseph, he will save his people from their sins. One of the other interesting things about this genealogy and how it leads up to the birth of Jesus from Mary is that the genealogy that's given here is uh, a glorious genealogy of Christ. He's from the line of kings, as I pointed out. But, but it is also, in fact, filled with allusions to and, and, and pointers to sin and scandal among the people of God and, in fact, among the ancestors of Jesus himself. In fact, even centrally of David himself, the central figure in the genealogy leading up to Jesus. Um, why do I say that? Well, there's something interesting here. One of the interesting things is that in the genealogy, there's four uh, women. Four of the mothers are mentioned. Not all of the mothers are mentioned. And, and in genealogies, sometimes... Uh, certain women of note were mentioned in there. And four uh, important women of note from the genealogy are mentioned here. However, they're not the only important, significant figures. In fact, if you were to pick out significant women in the genealogy, if you were going to pick one that you would want to put, you might pick Sarah, Abraham's wife, a godly woman and matriarch of the people of Israel, or Rebecca. The one who understood, the, who had the twins and whom God revealed to her that, that there were two nations struggling in her womb and that the elder would serve the younger and, and revealed to her that Jacob was chosen over Esau and, uh, or, or Rachel. But no, instead we're told about Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and the, her that had been the wife of Uriah. Um, in particular, that is Bathsheba. And this is from 2 Samuel, where it describes a great sin of David. The, the, the great falling of David, where it describes that he, one day when he was out on the roof, he saw a woman uh, bathing, and he... He saw her, he desired her, and it says that he called for her and he took her and he went into her 
and she became pregnant. And when David realizes that she's pregnant, in order to try to cover up his sin, he uh, first tries to have Urias, who was, Uriah, who was a Hittite, a Gentile, um, and a faithful, one of David's faithful mighty men. One of the men who fought by his side. One of the men who risked his life time and time again to protect and to defend David. One of the men who was, did not hesitate. If David said, let's go out into battle and let's fight and let's risk put our lives on the line, Uriah would go out and he would do that and he would gladly put himself between a spear and David given the opportunity. And this faithful follower of David, David first tries to have him come home to go into his wife so that he could cover it up, through, cover up the pregnancy that way. When that doesn't work, he schemes with, David schemes with his head of his army to have Uriah killed in battle. And so David's adultery and his uh, murder of this faithful follower of her, his is not only um, in the background in this genealogy, but it is specifically called out in what is said. Because in verse 6 here, when it says, And Jesse begat David the king, and David begat the king, begat Solomon of her that had been the wife of Urias. Um, we won't go in, into all of it either, but if you look at Tamar, you see that the situation with Tamar also involved a scandalous Pregnancy and sexual immorality. Uh, the story of Ruth. Now, Ruth was a righteous woman, but Ruth is identified again and again as being a Moabitess. And so if you were to go back, back in Genesis, in the story of Lot and his daughters and where the Moabites came from, you also have another scandalous story, scandalous pregnancy that takes place. And uh, then you come to Rahab, who is mentioned. And Rahab was, uh, is identified back in the book of Joshua. She was one who uh, God had given faith to her so that she knew that God was going to give Israel the land. And she hid the spies and she helps them out. But she is also identified as being Rahab the harlot. And so we see that in the genealogy, it's not a pretty cleaned up, nice, uh, tidy family. And I'm, I'm just calling those out in particular because they're mentioned in order to call to our attention uh, the sin of God's people, of people like David and of Judah, the forefather of the tribe of Judah. And so when it says that Jesus came to save his people from their sins. We see that he, he takes on that line of descent. He takes it upon himself and he enters into it. And uh, I find it also interesting that as his birth comes about, we see that his birth also begins not with sin, but it does begin with another scandalous pregnancy. And there are, in the Bible, of significant figures, there are several, throughout the Bible stories, there are several scandalous pregnancies of significant people. There are also several miraculous births, like of Isaac, later on of John the Baptist, of Samson, um, of Samuel. There are miraculous births. Um, 
children born to women who were barren. And interestingly in Jesus, we have both a pregnancy which on the appearance at first is scandalous and also at the same time a miraculous birth. And in that we're we're shown uh, also the contrast between the way that Jesus came into the world in a pure and miraculous fashion, but also his significance that he also came by a miraculous birth as Isaac did. As Samuel did, as Samson did, and others. And so we see that for him to be the Savior, he takes on the sin of his people. He is not uh, unwilling to come into this world through this line and to uh, call these people his ancestors, his forefathers. And to own them, to own sinful, fallen, broken people as his own. And he does. He takes on the sin of his people. He also, we have clues here that he includes Gentiles among his people. Now this this genealogy, of course, is a genealogy of a Jewish man coming from a line of Jewish, Hebrew, Israelite people all through the generations. Of course, that's what it is. And yet again, in the same way, as we see that we have pointers to the fact that Jesus took upon, uh, entered into this world of sin, into a family of sinners, and took that upon himself, we also see clues of what would become more clear later clues and pointers to the fact that the Gentiles, the nations, are included in his people. Abraham, of course, is called out early on in this. He is the beginning of this genealogy. We could go back further from Abraham all the way back to Adam, but Abraham is called out. But Abraham was the one through whom all the families of the earth would be blessed. So Jesus coming to be a savior of his people, his people is inclusive not only of the Jews, but also of all families of the earth. Because the blessings of God through him would come throughout all of the earth. Not only that, but in those same uh, stories I mentioned, we have uh, again and again clues about inclusion of Gentiles, non-Israelites into the family, into the family tree. Even those from a somewhat uh, suspicious past. I mean, uh, uh, Rahab is mentioned. Rahab was not only a Gentile, but Rahab was a Canaanite prostitute. And as a Canaanite, she was, by her nature, she was among a people which were not only uh, separated from the promises of God that God was giving to Israel, but they were a people that were cursed by God, that were under the judgment of God in a very uh, serious way. They were the people that dwelled in the land before God sent the Israelites in, who were working all kinds of abominations. And yet Rahab not only is spared when Joshua and the Israelites conquer the city of Jericho, not only is she spared and her life saved, But she is allowed to join the kingdom of Israel. Not only does she join the kingdom of Israel and get incorporated in, but she marries the prince, one of the chief men of the tribe of Judah at the time, 
And not only that, but she becomes the foremother of the greatest king of the Israelites as well. And so we see God including a Gentile in. And then we have Ruth and the story of Ruth, who was a, a Moabitess, as we've already pointed out. And she marries Boaz, and they give birth to a son, and she would become the foremother of King David as well. And then we have uh, Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. And though we don't know specifically, she was most likely a Gentile, uh, being married to a Gentile. But uh, whether she was herself a Gentile or not, we are uh, clued in again about Uriah, who was a Hittite, a Gentile, and how through uh, Bathsheba, God would bring Solomon and then the line of kings into this world And so uh, we are in these ways reminded that God intends and through Jesus, he would be a savior, not only of the Jews, but also of all the nations of the world. We also are told that he is a deliverer of his people from captivity and exile in the in the genealogy that's given. It's divided into three periods of time and the last period of time begins with the people being carried out of the promised land and into Babylon. And as I pointed out, they had come back in, and yet there was a sense and and an expectation in which they had not fully been brought back into the freedom of the kingdom of God. And so the awaited Messiah would be the one that would deliver them from their captivity and their exile. We see also in this about Jesus that he himself is pure. We see that he himself in the way that it's described as though he's entering into this sinful family tree. Yet he himself is shown to be uh, in some sense separated from that. He is at least shown that he himself is pure of these things. It describes his origin. It describes where he came from. Uh, if you had known the, the family and the time when Jesus was growing up, you would have, of course, thought that Jesus was the son of Joseph and of Mary. And in a very real sense, he was the son of Joseph. But that was because Joseph adopted him, not because Joseph himself begat Jesus. And Matthew is very precise in his language so that the reader, the hearer, would clearly know where Jesus came from. He says this, the, uh, the, Jacob beget, this is verse 16, And Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Every other line in the genealogy up, up to that is begat, begat, so-and-so, begat, so-and-so, begat, so-and-so. But it doesn't say Joseph begat Jesus. It says he was the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus. Jesus is born of Mary. Well, how is that going to take place? Well, it begins first by indicating that well, Mary was espoused while she was betrothed, engaged to be married to Joseph, she was found to be with child. That is, of course, the first thing that Joseph uh, realizes about this situation before he knows how this came to be. She's with child, as you can imagine. 
This is a great scandal. Joseph is a just man, and he's a merciful man, and so he doesn't uh, desire harm to Mary. Even after finding this out, he's very merciful, but he's also a just man, and um, his intention is to privately uh, put her away, privately uh, put her away before, um, before consummating the marriage because she's found to be already pregnant. And yet, in that situation, God appears to him in a dream and reveals to him that, in fact, Mary had not been guilty of sin in conceiving Jesus, but, but that which was conceived of her was from the Holy Spirit. And so we see that uh, another example, another example of how again and again Jesus comes into this world to reverse the evil effects of sin and, and evil in this world. He comes to heal the brokenness. He comes to fix that which is wrong. He comes to cleanse that which is sullied by sin. He comes to bring about deliverance to those who are captive. He comes to reverse all the corruption and evil and and, uh, destruction that sin and evil has wrought in this world. And he turns things around. He turns everything on his head. And here he comes to this world pure from being conceived of the Holy Ghost. We see uh, from this... And from what would be said in verse 23, we see also the nature of Jesus, that Jesus is the Son of God, and that Jesus is the Son of Man. We see, in fact, clearly revealed to us both Jesus' divine nature as being the Son of God and His human nature of being the Son of humanity. He's born of a woman. Born of a human woman. Comes uh, into this world. Conceived in her womb. She gives birth to Him and He's born a human baby. Grows up and experiences and has fully in Him all of the nature of humanity. But he is also, in another way, like no other man, in that he is also of fully divine origin. His nature as divine is clearly stated, first from the fact that he is born, uh, he is conceived of the Holy Spirit. God is his father. God is literally his father. And he's conceived of the Holy Spirit. Um, the, it was a virgin birth, so he comes into this world in a miraculous way. Not just a miraculous way like when God had Sarah conceive when she was barren and when she was past the age of bearing. That itself was a miracle, but this is a miracle beyond miracles that a virgin would conceive and give birth. And so we see his divine nature from that, but also this, the prophecy itself that is given of him. Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. 
We see that the essence of who Jesus is, that God himself has taken on flesh and dwelt among us, that, that, that God himself has come down into this earth and taken on human nature and human form and walked among us and dwelt among us and made himself present with us in the person of Jesus. It says of Jesus that all the fullness of the Godhead dwells in him bodily. It says of Jesus that God, who in sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken unto us by His Son. It says of Him that He is the image of the invisible God, that He is the firstborn. It says of Him that He is called Emmanuel, that is God with us. What a glorious promise. What a glorious truth that God himself was willing to come down and make himself present with us. And so when we, we think about his birth, when we celebrate Jesus' being born into this world, we're celebrating the reality of what God has done to deliver his people from their sins. His people from the Jews his people from the nations of the Gentiles, his people from every uh, family of this world, that he uh, takes their sin, our sin, upon himself, that he enters into our corrupt and sinful family tree, and he takes it all upon himself, and he is victorious and successful in delivering us, in saving us from our sin. For it says, He shall save His people from their sins. And that brings me to the last thing that I want to point out of which we learn of Jesus from this passage here. And that is this, that He is the fulfillment of the plan and of the Word of God. He's the fulfillment of the plan of God as we've seen God's promise to Abraham, God's promise to David. He's the fulfillment of the word of God. Jesus would later say that the things that are written in the scriptures were written of him. And Matthew in particular has a clear desire and purpose to show that Jesus was the fulfillment of God's word and promises through the scriptures. As you read through Matthew, you will see the same phrase used again and again based on things that Jesus did and said. And he'll say again and again, this was done that it should be fulfilled, that which was spoken of the prophets. And he'll cite from the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament today. But what for Matthew and them at that time was their scriptures that they had up to that point. And again and again, he would show this fulfilled that which the prophets spoke. And we have one of the many examples in Matthew here, even in this passage. Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. And that was in verse 22. He said, now all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet. So as the book of Matthew begins, as in fact the, the New Testament begins, it begins with an announcement about a significant person 
but more than just a significant person. It begins with the announcement of the person, the man that people have been waiting for, that people have been expecting, hoping for, and needing to come into this world. And we need the truth of that announcement just as much today as they did then. We need the salvation that he gives just as much today as they did. So I hope that even today, about 2,000 years after this was first announced to the people, that it is good news to you today as it was then because it announces Jesus, the one who would come into the world, fulfill the promises of God, the one that would save his people from our sins. Let us pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the account of your word that tells us the good news of the coming of Jesus into this world. That even in his birth, we see the miraculous hand and work of God, and we see signaled to us the hope of all that he would do in his life and death and resurrection and in his ascension and his reign at the right hand of the Father in heaven itself. And God, we thank you for that. We thank you that we have the announcement of this good news and we have the account of all that followed it in his life, what he did, the miraculous works, the glorious words that he spoke. And so may we rejoice in this good news and rejoice in what you have revealed to us of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.